Hi there, Rolf here. Thanks for listening to this episode of my course podcast, Markets and Society. I've included a description and additional material relevant in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy it. I want to situate our discussion in the context of how we typically think of people today versus people in the past. And by people today, I mean broadly speaking, the post-Neolithic human self versus the pre-Neolithic human self. So including people living, say, five, 6,000, 7,000 years ago in ancient Egypt. Even though people living many, many thousands of years ago still seem to us as very primitive, obviously there's an enormous difference in terms of our own cultural imagination. Thinking about people who were living by virtue of their own efforts, growing food in the fields, living in cities, living in political systems, as basic as those systems may have been, compared to the alternative, the people who came before them, small nomadic groups of hunter-gatherers going around, killing their food, gathering their nuts or whatever it is on a kind of daily basis and consuming them. And that difference between one and the other is, in our popular imagination, a difference of technology. Recall the formula that we're using in this class. Human agency, our ability to control our own lives. Human agency raised to the power of technology equals modernity. Until we have technology, we cannot see ourselves as a modern person. The modern self as a function of our agency enabled by technology. And that line then between a farmer growing crops in the field, which is a technology, versus people trying to kill a deer, no technology, or only the most basic technology, is therefore a fundamental dividing line. As a result, it's pretty standard for us to think of primitive versus complex. A primitive lifestyle in the pre-Neolithic leading to more complexity once we reach the post-Neolithic. And this is the idea of the subordination of a primitive hunter-gatherer to nature. That idea that we cannot escape nature, we are dominated by nature. And I have a quote that I wanted to read you from Adorno in his very famous text, The Dialectic of Enlightenment. He wrote, the concordance between the mind of man, by which we might indicate reason, the concordance between reason and the nature of things is patriarchal. The human mind which overcomes superstition is to hold sway over a disenchanted nature. Knowledge which is power knows no obstacles and technology is the essence of this power. Myth turns into enlightenment and nature into mere objectivity. So we don't live as a function of nature. Instead, we live with the domination over nature. And the way we exercise that domination is with knowledge, but knowledge expresses itself as technology. This is the famous formulation that Adorno provides us in the Dialectic of Enlightenment. He's saying this critically, how human beings like to think about themselves. But the point is, I think this sentiment still informs very powerfully our modern understanding of ourselves. Hence, it's very difficult for us to go back and look at the pre-Neolithic, the upper and middle Paleolithic, look at people living lives back then and see them as anything other than desperate or trapped in some kind of naturally enforced subsistence state, barely able to keep themselves alive, let alone have any time to do anything more sophisticated. Against that view, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, we have this remarkable text by Marshall Solins called The Original Affluent Society, which he published. It was actually first delivered as a set of remarks at a conference held in 1967 in Chicago called Man the Hunter, which was a conference convened to reimagine or reconceptualize the lives of hunter-gatherers. And he provided some commentary to that conference. 
And he took that commentary and turned it into a formal paper called The Original Affluent Society, then became the first chapter of a book he wrote called Stone Age Economics. Now note the title, The Original Affluent Society. This is a reference to another book by the economist John Kenneth Galbraith, The Affluent Society. And so what Solins is doing is he's making specific and explicit reference to the work by Galbraith. Now, most readers of Solins' essay, The Original Affluent Society, have, I suspect, not read the Galbraith text, which is fine, except that they cut themselves off, I think, from understanding the really the essential element, the essential meaning of Solins' argument and what he's trying to do. So let's very quickly remind ourselves uh, the underlying precept that Galbraith presents us with in the affluent society. Galbraith's question, why do we aspire to the kinds of affluence we see around us? And Galbraith's key perceptive point is that we have in our modern system a problem at the level of the self, which is that we are dependent upon market function in order for us to secure a sense of well-being. All of us, every single one of us in this room, will be dependent on a, on a well-functioning market in order for us to keep ourselves alive. We have no other mechanism but to use the market. This traces back to an argument made by Carl Polanyi called the disembedding of the market from its social function. But basically the idea is that you, your ability to define your life outside of a market context is slim to none. Short of becoming some kind of crazy hermit and going completely off-grid, you are going to be dependent on the market. Therefore, in order for you to have a sense of well-being inside of this system, and by well-being I mean a confidence that tomorrow will be okay, and then the day after that will also be okay, you need that market to function. Well, what is the purpose of our markets around us? What do those markets do? They produce. Therefore, we become a producer society. So it locks us into a cycle of production and consumption. This explains things like, for example, our obsession with economic growth. We need the economy to be growing because economic growth is a proxy for a well-functioning market. Think for a moment, what would happen if, say, there is a global market collapse? Unemployment spikes to 25 or 35 percent. No one is hiring. Jobs are scarce. How are you going to feel? You are going to feel a very great deal of anxiety because you have no alternative. So for Galbraith, he argues that we've created in our society what he calls the dependence effect. We are dependent upon this cycle of production and consumption. We produce to keep the market healthy, but because we're producing, therefore we need to consume. We then stress, as a result of this market functioning, the importance of material affluence. All these things that we produce, that we therefore need to consume, places the emphasis on a material affluence. The original affluent society then is positioned within the analytical space that Galbraith's argument presents us with. The notion of how people live their lives in the context of an economic paradigm and the sense of psychological or even psychosocial well-being that that paradigm then can provide. If we take the traditional view of primitive hunter-gatherers, people who are living nomadic lives, desperately searching for their food day after day, we would argue that those lives must have been extremely precarious and hence the psychosocial state of people living inside of such societies must have been one of extreme and intense anxiety, constant concern. Will they find enough food to survive another day? Fighting against the elemental forces of nature, a struggle day to day just to survive. So it would certainly seem that this context of a market anxiety is much, much better than the pervasive, persistent anxiety 
that people living primitive nomadic hunter-gathering uh, lives would have had. However, in the original affluent society, Marshall Solins has a polemical take against this view. And he essentially says, what happens if we turn that proposition around? We modern humans are affluent. Primitive hunter-gatherers definitionally have no affluence. What if we say that proposition is fundamentally wrong and instead argue that hunting-gathering can itself produce a kind of affluence? This is the starting observation in the Solins text. And from there, he builds out an entire argument for how we might frame a hunting-gathering mode of existence inside an economic paradigm of affluence. And from there, as we'll see, we can actually then further infer all kinds of other interesting characteristics, which eventually will lead us to some very counterintuitive conclusions. So this text, the original affluent society, polemical, and on its face seemingly absurd, people who are, uh, who are leading these highly primitive lives, attributing to them a kind of primitive affluence, uh, seems ridiculous. And yet the text has had a very long shelf life. I just yesterday took a look in Google to see where it's being cited these days. This text is now part of or forms a crucible of thinking in areas around things like the sociology of consumption, the movement towards rethinking the imperative of growth or the newly emerging field of degrowth, things like that. So in fact, these are all forward-looking elements in terms of trying to resolve the paradigmatic contradiction that we're facing at the moment, attempting to think about what kinds of new systems we can adduce in order to replace the existing market system that, as we know, is leading us to an impossible, an impossible future. So it continues to have a very vivid uh, and important presence uh, in our intellectual life. Hence, I think it's well worth our consideration. From the very beginning of his text, he says, if we turn that traditional view around, we can end up with this very unexpected conclusion. In order to do so, we have to understand what does affluence mean? Affluence doesn't necessarily mean having many things. Affluence means, as he says, easily satisfying the material wants that we have. If the wants that we have are very few and we can easily satisfy them, then that is a legitimate way or a legitimate mode of arguing that the society is thereby affluent. So he has this notion of what he calls the Zen road to affluence, as opposed to our material intensive model of affluence in which we have many things, buy many goods, consume all the time. In the Zen road to affluence, he describes it as follows. Human material wants are finite and few and technical means unchanging, but on the whole adequate, meaning our ability to make what we need works fine. Adopting the Zen strategy, a people can enjoy an unparalleled material plenty with a low standard of living. It's a very contradictory way for people like us to think about an idea of affluence, or we might call it prosperity. How could a low standard of living map on to a principle of prosperity or affluence? <coughs> but this is precisely what Marshall Solins is going to argue. Now, the stakes of his argument, broadly, are, I think, very significant. Because we have these two ways of looking at it, right? We have these two approaches to trying to figure out the so-called sapient paradox, why it took us so long to become modern human beings. The traditional view, the view that I think still is largely dominant, is that for whatever reason, our Paleolithic ancestors simply did not have the necessary cultural or technological complex to make their lives better. Paleolithic homo sapiens did not have the resources or the means 
perhaps the cognition to be able to improve, improve their lives. However, if we can ascribe to a hunting-gathering lifestyle some kind of an affluence which suggests some element of satisfaction, or let's call it adequacy in the lives that they led, maybe there's an alternative, which is if you're leading a perfectly adequate life today, do you have a strong incentive to go around and make sweeping changes to that life? And the answer is presumably not. If every, what you have is adequate to the life that you want to lead, then why would you make huge efforts to, to change it? And so if we can successfully, or at least uh, plausibly, ascribe an affluence as existing inside of quote-unquote primitive hunter-gatherers, that would suggest that they may have lacked the incentive to make the kinds of sweeping cultural and technological changes that we associate with the Neolithic, and would be further consistent with the observation already noted that perhaps instead of looking at it through the lens of endogenous human uh, ambition, we might look at it through the lens of exogenous factors which prompted human beings to shift their behavior as a reaction to or an adaptation to changing ecological or environmental conditions. In the traditional view, our primitive ancestors lacked human agency, homo subordinatus, man dominated by nature. But if we can make a plausible case for some kind of affluence inside of a hunting-gathering culture, one of the things that emerges from that is human agency, our ability to make decisions and take control of the lives that we want to lead. How can people who are throwing spears at deer and eating berries off a bush, how could those people possibly be affluent? That's exactly what Salins is going to try to show you. What is affluence? This is the question. What is affluence? Being able to satisfy your wants, that is affluence. All the things you want, if you can simply get them, if they're simply there to be gotten, you are an affluent person. You have the things that you need. This is what he calls the Zen road to affluence. So his argument is going to be premised on the idea that hunter-gatherers can be considered affluent precisely because our definition of affluence, which stresses the role of material goods and the role of technology in our societies, lies outside of the mindset of people who are living inside of a hunting-gathering culture. Now, the traditional view, the nomadic hunters and gatherers barely met minimum subsistence needs and often fell far short of them. Their population of one person to 10 or 20 square miles clearly reflects this. Constantly on the move in search of food, they lacked the leisure hours for non-subsistence activities of any significance and they could transport little of what they might manufacture in spare moments. To them, adequacy of production, making enough, was simply a question of physical survival, keeping yourself alive for another day, and they rarely had surplus of either products or time. This is the traditional view of the nomadic hunting and gathering life, people who are locked into a cycle of nonstop activity simply to extract the resources from the environment that they need to keep themselves alive for another day. Uh, and I have another example from Vaclav Schmiel in his great book, Energy and Civilization, who takes direct issue with Salin's argument in the original affluent society. He's looking at the question of how human beings live in the context of our energy needs. He says, our inability to reconstruct prehistoric energy balances has provoked some inadmissible generalizations. And one of them is the idea that foragers can be portrayed as an original affluent society living in a kind of material plenty filled with leisure and sleep. Instead, he argues that people who are living lives like this 
often engaged in what he calls the dangerous work of foraging, environmental stress, infectious diseases, seasonal food shortages, devastating famines, malnourishment, as well as high infant mortality, low fertility rates, and generally speaking, a very unbalanced and capricious life. You never know what's going to happen next year, so you're constantly living in an environment of instability. In this context, how is it possible? How is it reasonable to say that, that there is a, a hunting gathering affluence? And Smill's book, published not that long ago, reminds us that despite Solon's argument having been published in the 1970s, there are still plenty of people who look at this argument and reject many of its most basic premises. Nonetheless, I think we can make the argument that people who tend to criticize Solon's do so in a rather narrow technical way, as opposed to considering his, his view in a more embracing sense, which is to say, how can we understand the lives that these people were leading in the context of an affluence which, despite, for example, yes indeed, environmental uh, instability or seasonal droughts or famines and so on and so forth, nonetheless, on the whole, seem more or less adequate to the people who are living those lives. We have to somehow come up with some kind of mechanism to distinguish whether one reading is more plausible than the other. Of course, we have that mechanism, perhaps, because we have the sapient paradox. Why were people with large brains content to live for hundreds of thousands of years as hunter-gatherers if the life was terrible? Suggests maybe it wasn't that shitty. At least it's a plausible suggestion. May not be true, but it seems plausible enough. So what does Solens point out? Well, the first thing he does is he takes issue with the way in which we have understood primitive peoples, hunter-gatherers. Of course, we have no access or very little direct access, only small amounts of archaeological evidence with which to reconstruct the hunting-gathering life of people who lived 50, 100, or 150,000 years ago. So it is not uncommon for people who are thinking about this question to use a proxy for what a paleolithic hunting-gathering life would have looked like. And the clear proxies that we have are people who live either today or very few people today, but certainly going back, say, in the 19th century, people who were encountered by European ethnographers, anthropologists, early anthropologists, who still seem to be living what people called Stone Age lives, people who were themselves still living some kind of hunting-gathering lifestyle. What did those lives look like? And from the outside perspective, they looked unremittingly primitive. Very limited technologies. They seemed to eat very disgusting foods. I don't know if you've seen those documentaries of people going into the, into the bush and having dinner with some local tribe. Here's a wonderful plate of freshly dug up bugs. This is incredibly disgusting stuff. Only people who are living at the margins would eat this kind of thing. So broadly speaking, the encounter with modern Stone Age peoples has typically produced an account of people who are living at the margins of civilization and therefore marginally civilized or completely uncivilized and has helped to reinforce that boundary between a paleolithic past characterized by uncertainty, fear, anxiety, instability, and constant threat of death from starvation, contrasting it with the kind of stability that the post-neolithic sedentary agriculturally enabled uh, technological societies that we have uh, can offer, can provide. As he puts it here, and it is precisely from this, meaning our modern anxious vantage, that we look back upon the hunters, from our modern anxious vantage that we look back upon hunters. And I want to circle this word, if it works, anxious, anxiety. 
Because recall the Galbraithian argument. Why do we see the dependence effect? It's a way for us to secure psychosocial well-being in the context of a market which creates condition of pervasive anxiety should that market not be functioning. So anxiety is a feature of our existing society, but we can overcome that anxiety as long as we commit ourselves to maintaining productive market forces. It's not unreasonable then that we would take our own perspective of anxiety and map it back onto the past. If we have this anxiety, surely people who were living back then must have been anxious all the time. But he says we must entertain the empirical possibility that hunters are in business for their health, a finite objective, and that bow and arrow are adequate to that end. There are two elements that he points to which I think help explain or reinforce the ways in which we interpret these primitive lives as primitive, to create the category of primitive to describe people living in hunting-gathering communities. The first is that their patterns of behavior lie outside of our own that we characterize as civilized, and so therefore we are predisposed to see people doing things like eating grubs or other disgusting foods or not dressing very well or engaging in what seem to us as very unseemly sexual practices or other things like this as essentially being further demonstration, reinforcement of that, that notion of their primitiveness. If you didn't have to eat bugs, you wouldn't. Therefore, if you're eating bugs, you have no choice. You're locked into this, into this horrendous life. The second point, which is, I think, a very important one, is where are these people found today. Someone living in the 19th century, when this whole field was getting started, ethnographers were departing to go and try to study quote-unquote Stone Age tribes. Where are they found? They're found in places like Papua New Guinea. They're found in the Amazon. They're found in the far north, in the circumpolar Arctic regions. In other words, at the very extremities of our human geography, where are they not found? They're not found in southern Italy. They're not found in modern Poland. So when we find these people, not only do we see them at the margins of what we think of as civilization in terms of their, of their habits, but also in terms of where they're located. They're literally located in the places where we have not yet managed to colonize or impose a sort of civilizing patriarchy over nature. So this suggests that the people who are living these lives that we can observe and then study are living in the very extreme conditions of what an otherwise Paleolithic hunting-gathering life would have looked like. 50,000 years ago, no one by choice would have said, you know what, I'd like to go live right close to the North Pole. You go live close to the North Pole because as a result of population expansion, that's where it's left for you to go to live in. So when we come back and see the people living there, if we take those people as normative of somehow what a hunting-gathering life looks like, we have an inevitably distorted view. And yet, even the study of people living in these marginal reaches of human geography, if we look at it in the right way, we nonetheless see some very interesting things emerge. Let's go back and remind ourselves what the condition is that we're looking at. Nomadic hunters and gatherers, barely meeting minimum subsistence, often falling far short of them, very tiny population densities, constantly on the move, no leisure, no goods because they can't transport anything, the adequacy of production means physical survival. How do we counter this argument? What evidence might we be able to find that suggests that this picture of the nomadic hunting-gathering life is incorrect? How much time do hunter-gatherers actually spend securing their daily existence? This is the key data point that Solins devotes most of his text to. If this reading is correct, if the reading of nomadic hunter-gatherers 
spending almost all of their time securing the food they need in order to survive another day. If that is correct, then we would expect hunter-gatherers to have no time other than, than that pursuit. But when we look at the data, that is not what we find. There have been studies done, and when Solons was first writing this text, those studies were very fresh, very new, in which people had gone to observe directly uh, behaviors of certain kinds of people still living these kinds of lives in Australia, in parts of Africa. And what they found was that the amount of time needed to secure existence from the environment to survive was not most of your waking hours, but was a surprisingly small amount of time, perhaps only a few hours a day. Or, in certain cases, might be many hours of brief, intense work followed by long periods off, firefighter hours. You're on call for three days, but then you get 10 days, 10 days off. So in other words, the reading of the nomadic hunter-gatherer as having no time for anything but to keep themselves alive through securing the food that they need is inconsistent with the evidence that we have when we observe people in these circumstances and observe how they collect their food. One of the statistics in the text, two hours a day. They work about two hours a day collecting their food. Well, that has significant consequences because you'll note that the implication here in this reading of the primitive hunter-gatherer is the reason they're so primitive is they don't have any time for anything else except getting food. If they had the time, maybe they'd be able to use their outsized human cognition to think of a better way, but they don't because they're locked in this constant struggle to get the food that they need. Now I turn around and I tell you, actually, it turns out that any typical, say, 16-hour waking period, 14 hours of those are not dedicated to resource extraction. They're doing other things which then immediately tells us, hmm, maybe there's something then that we're not seeing, if, it, if, if there is a lot or an abundance of leisure time. Now, he has some interesting citations from 19th century, particularly, I think, British authors who observed this, particularly in the Australian context. And they saw these guys were not working very hard. And when they were not working, what were they doing? Dancing, singing, some were gambling, socializing, etc. And so from the point of view of an English Protestant mindset, that just meant they were inimitably lazy people, like just very, very lazy. But what do you expect? They're primitive people. A lot of that free time spent dancing or whatever it might be, that socialization, we could look at it as simply laziness, but there might be another way of thinking about what that might signify, particularly since it's a behavior that's observed pretty much wherever you look. So whether it's people in uh, the African continent, people in circumpolar regions, people in Papua New Guinea, people in Australia, wherever it is, one of the constant characteristics is not too much time spent gathering resources, lots of time spent in these sort of social activities. The second point we might make is how do we define the concept of work? What does work actually mean? Now, in our mode of existence, work is very clear. Work is when you're going off, contributing your labor for some kind of a wage to support some production function, you distinguish that from your leisure time. Is it reasonable to think of that leisure work distinction in the context of a hunting gathering life? And here we might take the example of food preparation. So one of the things that's found is that traditionally there is a gendering between hunting activity and gathering. Uh, gathering tends to be gendered female and hunting tends to be gendered male, although there's some discussion about that. Food preparation is also gendered. Typically women prepare food. Is food preparation, should that be seen as drudgery imposed upon women? One part of it might be that food preparation itself is going to be relatively straightforward and simple, not occupy too much time. But think about what food preparation would look like. Let's suppose that it's gendered, because it typically is. So you have 
ladies who are now preparing the food, what's that going to look like? There's some group over there, and they're preparing the food, and you're looking at them from the outside. Are you going to see a bunch of people engaged in the drudgery of food preparation, you know, looking downcast and so on? Have you not seen something like where your grandmother and maybe your aunt and so on are in the kitchen and they're doing stuff and they're chatting and talking and laughing and maybe drinking sherry? Does that sound like very remote? Absolutely not. Food preparation, we can think of it as work insofar as we can link it to a production function, but we can also think of it as part of the community, a bunch of people coming together, talking, gossiping, chatting with each other, and so on. Even out hunting, a bunch of men who are out hunting, chatting, discussing with each other. This distinction between work and leisure, which we've established, work being an environment which is essentially anonymous or foreign to us versus leisure, which is we think of as the familiar home life, etc., that distinction dissolves when the production function is constantly taking place inside of a tight-knit, cohering community. If we want to go back and look at people living these quote-unquote primitive hunting-gathering lives, and the first thing we say is that they're working very hard all the time to secure very little, we're imposing a sociological category over those lives that might have no meaning, no resonance. They're working very hard. What's working in this context? Preparing food with a bunch of your closest friends, having a laugh, is not going to feel like work. Going out with your friends to go hunt down some deer when you're telling jokes and having fun and who's sleeping with whom and I don't know, what all the other stuff, is not going to feel like work. That notion of work is a category that belongs to us. When we impose that back on the past, we're actually labeling an activity that may not deserve that, that label. And it's not a neutral or agnostic label. We think of work as something arduous, difficult, and for some of us, to avoid. We would rather work less rather than more. Or let's say this way, we all seek to optimize our labor output, get the most for what we put in. So if we're seeing these people as working very hard to secure very little, we're saying it's hardly an optimized labor environment. But if we then recategorize that idea of work, it's not actual work as we understand it. It's part of a connected tissue of identity that links extracting the resources you need with these multiple overlapping social functions that exist inside the group, maybe it then grants us a different perspective. So that's one of the points that he makes, is that if we simply look at the amount of time spent getting the resources that we need, we find that instead of being a constant permanent feature of this life, for many groups, again, these groups that are living in the very margins, that it actually doesn't require that much time. This comes back to the point when he looks at the Hadza community in Tanzania. The Hadza live around Lake Ayasi, which is an ecologically abundant region. They seasonally migrate around this area. So in certain seasons, they're in one place. In other seasons, they're in another place based on food availability. One group of the Hadza over time became agriculturalists, pastoralists. They started growing their own food. And he points out in the text, interesting that the Hadza, tutored by life and not by anthropology, reject the Neolithic revolution in order to keep their leisure. Another way of saying that is that the Hadza, instead of taking their cues from Western anthropological prejudices, which says modernity begins when you settle down as farmers, but instead taking their cues from how they're actually leading their lives, they look across at their neighbors who are farmers and see those people working far harder than they're working in order to secure the same result and therefore actively reject the incorporation of that farming technology into their own life. So that suggests that indeed that there is something going on inside of the hunting-gathering environment that even when given an alternative, people would prefer nonetheless to stay with it. 
Now, it's clear that they're not comparing themselves to people living modern lives in Manhattan or something. So it's not like we're bridging that kind of a, of a, of a civilizing divide. But what it suggests is that even given the opportunity to change, hunting gathering still seems to be a compelling way of living your life, which means it had to, it goes back to that word that, that Solins uses, it had to at some level have been adequate. So that's the first point. How much time were people actually spending on this and should we even constitute it or think about it as work? The second point that he raises around this question of people living in what he calls an institutionalized immaterialism, meaning a cultural preference for living outside a world of material goods. Where does that come from? He says, in the non-subsistence sphere, so meaning when people are thinking about using their time outside of simply gaining the food they need in order to survive, people's wants are generally easily satisfied. Material plenty depends upon the ease of production and that upon the simplicity of technology and democracy of property. It's a question of where we place our wants relative to our needs. So in this case, what he's saying is if your wants are derived from the world around you, sticks and rocks and plants and so on, right, that don't require much effort to turn them into something you want to use and are very easily found, they belong to everyone, they're a product of nature, then those wants are going to be very easily satisfied. And note the characteristics that he adduces of these products, of this sort of very limited material world of the hunter-gatherer. Products are simple, access is universal, extraction is easy, skill sets are generalized, there's no specialized labor, and sharing is embedded. What I have can become yours, so I don't have to go out and necessarily constantly be acquiring everything for myself. Things come in and they belong to the community generally. And we'll come back to this notion of an embedded sharing economy. People then, he says, in such contexts can usually participate in the going prosperity such as it is. But it's not very much. That prosperity is set very low. This prosperity depends as well upon an objectively low standard of living, possessing very few material things. It is critical that the customary quote of consumables be culturally set at a modest point. Note that phrase, culturally set. What does that mean if something is culturally set? It means that you, living inside of a culture, have expectations that you didn't make for yourself, but that have been framed for you. No one woke up in this room at the age of five and said, I'm now going to post pictures of myself on Instagram so I can farm likes, feeling cute, thought I might post today, right? <laughs> because that's a choice that I'm making for myself. Where does that come from? If you buy a nice new outfit and you need to be validated in your choice, so you put it up on the Instagram, where does that come from? What kind of a behavior is that? That is a culturally set behavior. You didn't decide upon that behavior yourself. That behavior is out there that creates expectations. So something being culturally set means that it's not a universal desire. If we bring it back to our economic circumstance here. The wants and needs that we have are not set universally outside of the most basic. We all want food, we all need water, etc. But beyond that, our wants and needs are going to be determined by the cultural environment in which we find ourselves. If everybody you know is getting tons of likes on Instagram, you're going to want to have tons of likes as well. In a world that has no Instagram, that was my world, you're not going to give a shit. Those preferences are simply culturally set. So when you wake up in the morning and you think, what would I like for myself today? 
Or when you think about what you want to consume over the next six months, maybe it's a vacation, maybe it's a nice dinner out, maybe it's a nice pair of shoes, maybe it's a handbag, I don't know, whatever it is, all of those wants that, or, or even needs, if you want to call them that, all of those are culturally set. I change your culture, you will lose them all. They will become a different set. Thus, any expectation for satisfying needs beyond this basic requirement exists only as a function of the culture of any society. So if you're living inside of a society which is inherently immaterial, you're not going to have wants for material goods. It's simply that. So the material poverty becomes institutionalized inside of these societies, institutionalized meaning part of the rules that form that society, precisely because it's part of the cultural complex of those societies. This then leads us to the next question. Why would it be that people who are perfectly capable of using their hands to make things, why would we want to live in a world of material poverty? What possible advantage could that bring us to have so few things when we know that owning things is actually very helpful. It's the principle of mobility. If you are going to be mobile, then you are going to put the emphasis on having as few things as possible. I don't know how many of you have done camping trips. Or maybe some of you are on vacation, right, and you pack the things that you think you'll need, and then at some point as you're lugging your extremely heavy suitcase to the Airbnb, which is up steps in a hill and no one's ever at home, and there's a certain point where you start to wonder, why did I pack so much shit? I don't need all this stuff. You can actually get by with almost nothing. When you take your suitcase to some trip and you come back and you realize, I didn't touch half the stuff. Proof that we tend to overpack. Why? Because we live inside the world of material consumption. We're used to thinking of ourselves through the lens of material prosperity. So when we have to move ourselves from one place to another, we take the things that make us feel comfortable with us. If a primary principle of our society is preserve our mobility, constantly able to move from one place to another, then as an institutional effect of that principle of mobility is going to be the active discouragement of the acquisition of any kind of significant material possession. So therefore, the material things that you're going to own are going to be easy to make, light uh, and simple and straightforward. Why invest a lot of time to build a house if you're going to only be in the region for three months? Why bother having more than one pair of shoes if everything you make you have to take with you on your back, it gets pretty heavy. You're going to start making some pretty drastic choices about what's important and what's not. So this principle of mobility discourages actively the creation of a material culture. Why is the principle of mobility so important? From an earlier point of view, mobility is primitivism. They can't build houses, so they have to move around all the time. They don't know how to grow crops, so therefore they're constantly chasing their food. But think about another way. Let's flip that around a little bit. What does mobility give you? Freedom, he does, he says, the, uses the word free. What does it mean if you think about it? What's the benefit of being mobile? What's the most basic need that we have to survive? Food, right? And we've already noted that a characteristic of the hunting-gathering lifestyle is to not spend huge amounts of effort acquiring their food. Once you and maybe 15 or 20 or 30 people in your group have been living in an area for, say, a month, what's happening to the food resources in that area? They're going down you are inevitably going to deplete available food resources simply as a function of living in a certain area. Well, one way to compensate for that is grow your own food in that area, and that way you don't have to move, and then you can do things like build houses and invest time in permanent things. What's another way of doing it? 
to move to some other place where there's food. So mobility, if you think about it, mobility is actually a form of confidence. I know that once I've exhausted the food in this place, I'll migrate to someplace else where I know that there's going to be food. And that sense then of knowing where you need to go in order to get the food you need links then to a kind of underlying economic confidence. And Solins, I think, makes a very good point in reinforcing that idea when he notes what he calls the prodigality of most hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherers are not practitioners of what we call deferred storage strategies. They don't set food aside for another day. They tend to eat whatever they get all at once. You kill a big animal, you bring it home, you have a big feast. You don't take half of it and say, let's save it for next month. Why would they do that? Well, again, 19th century ethnographers looked at this as childlike primitive behavior. This is proof that they lack maturity. There's a famous experiment, you probably know it, the Stanford marshmallow experiment. If you look at the way in which the notes of that experiment are written up, the idea is you can give your infant a marshmallow. Parents around the world nervously put marshmallows out for their kids. And you say, you can eat it now or you can have in 10 minutes two marshmallows or candy or whatever it is that the kid likes. And the idea is if the kid can wait 10 minutes, they will have better life outcomes. That was the conclusion of this experiment, that when you track people who are capable at a young age to practice deferred returns, waiting 10 minutes for their marshmallow, they're going to get better grades, better jobs, make better marriages, I don't know. They're going to have, in other words, better overall life outcomes. And this was read as being a universal feature of human mind. Human beings who practice deferred returns have better life outcomes. But in fact, this, shall we say, alternative view suggests something very different. Those people may have better outcomes, but that's because they live inside of an economic system where deferred returns count for something. But if you live inside an economic system where deferred returns don't bring you any advantage, then presumably the life outcomes of people who are like that wouldn't necessarily be the same. So in other words, it, it warns us away from looking at these kinds of behaviors as necessarily universal and reminds us that actually it's all contingent on the particular paradigm in which we find ourselves. In the world of hunter-gatherers, if deferred return created community optimization, we would see it, but we don't. If you see a group of people who are constantly consuming what they have on hand and not save anything for the, for the next day, what does it tell you? They are confident that they will be able to secure the resources they need. As he puts it, a confidence which is the reasonable human attribute of a generally successful economy. So think about that. Here you are living inside of your hunting-gathering life. You're not working very hard. You're spending a lot of time with people you know and maybe even like. And at the same time, you're living your life with, with a confidence that the next day will be perfectly fine. If we put all of those together, could we not say that that constitutes a kind of affluence, a kind of prosperity? Because ultimately, it's an economic system that's conferring upon the people living inside of that economic system psychosocial well-being. Uh, and that confidence then contrasts with, recall, what we would ordinarily ascribe to people living in these conditions as a pervasive anxiety. So if you buy into his argument, even partially, that people living hunting-gathering lives, because they emphasize mobility, therefore live non-material lives outside of investments in things like deferred storage in order to preserve that mobility, can thereby generate some degree of confidence, even if you only buy that partially, that goes quite a long way to countering that persistent view that somehow a hunting-gathering life is one that's in a state of perpetual anxiety. Now, I wanted to come back to a point that was raised by Smeal in his discussion about 
why we should not take too rosy a view of the lives that these people may have led. And that is his point about low fertility rates and infanticide, which he, which he mentioned in his book, Energy and Civilization. And Solins addresses this point with respect to fertility. He says, the demographic constraints of hunting-gathering, infanticide, geronticide, or senilicide, sexual continence for the duration of the nursing period, etc., practices for which many food-collecting peoples are well known, that these practices fit as well into the same sort of larger pattern of life of the hunter-gatherers built around principles of mobility from whence derives a kind of underlying economic confidence. And it's true that we do see practices, for example, putting old people to death, gerontocide, exposing unwanted infants to the elements, in some cases infanticide. But of course, by far the most common way of controlling for population is to simply space out birth intervals so that mothers try to increase the time between the periods when they're <coughs> reproductively capable. And of course, the way you do that is you extend lactation time. Lactation suppresses ovulation, not all the time, but broadly there's a correlation between lactation and non-ovulation. So if you have an extended lactation period, you can space out the birth intervals, and this allows you to have population control. The obvious reason for population control is at the level of the physical complexity of having to carry an infant around. If mobility is your primary goal, you don't want to have a lot of little children that you're carrying around all the time. But there's clearly another function behind population control, which is that in a world in which you're dependent on your environment for the resources that you need, you don't want to have too many people because larger groups will exhaust resources more quickly. So some kind of demographic control will be reasonable. Under these circumstances, it raises the question, if we look at practices like extended birthing intervals and uh, infanticide, should we really conclude that those are demonstrations of unremittingly primitive behaviors, people who don't know any better? And I can argue it's, in fact, following Solins, exactly the contrary. Those are examples of human cognition at work. If we look at what population cycles look like in the wild amongst animals, there's a very famous graph that was taken of the life cycle of the Arctic hare. Populations oscillate wildly. In periods of higher abundance, the population rapidly increases to take advantage of that abundance. The higher population quickly exhausts the resource base. The result is widespread starvation. Populations decline very dramatically, and then the cycle simply repeats itself. This is what a population cycle looks like if you don't have any cognitive ability to intervene. So if you're simply fulfilling that natural biological urge to reproduce as much as possible, this is what you get. And this means that you're never actually in equilibrium with resource availability in your environment. That equilibrium is imposed from the outside through higher birth rates and then followed by population decline. Controlled population, to my mind, looks a lot like societies, even small societies, making cognitive choices or, as it were, exercising their cognition over what represents optimal community, community size. But there's another neat little element hiding inside of this observation. We know, for instance, that one of the great dividers between the Paleolithic hunting-gathering communities of Homo sapiens and their Neolithic successors was that the Neolithic farming communities had much higher birth rates than the hunting-gathering communities that they replaced. Well, we've already discussed birth rates in this class because we talked about in our first class the problem of expanding human populations in a world of limited resources 
Club of Rome style, does this mean that humanity is doomed to overconsume because there are simply too many of us? And the answer is yes, maybe. But you may recall that there is a built-in corrective uh, at work inside of the demographic mechanics of human society, which is that there's a certain point after which human beings stop having many children. Do you remember what that point was? When you have more money. When you have more money, exactly. What's another word for having more money? Affluence. Affluent societies have fewer children. And you may recall that the affluence that's been identified broadly is around $4,000 per capita, very crude statistic. But in other words, it doesn't take having that much money before children go from being an asset, someone you can put to work in the field, to a liability, someone that's going to cost you a lot of effort to raise. And I point out to you, all of you in this room, what was your average age when you started working down the mines so you could save up money to pay for your college tuition? And I'm sure the answer for everyone in this room is I never worked down the mines uh, because I expect my parents to pay for my college tuition. Fuck you very much. So that's our attitude right now. The advantage of having high birth rates in the context of an agricultural economy is you have fields that need to be tilled. You have weeds that need to be taken out. And little tiny hands are very good at doing that kind of effort. So it makes sense in the context of an agricultural economy, as it were, to grow more labor inside the womb and put it to work in the fields. But in the hunting-gathering context, that's not a very successful or effective strategy. So to use low birth rates as a proxy for primitivism and a kind of failure of human society, particularly at a cognitive level, seems to me fundamentally misplaced because the evidence we have before us today suggests low birth rates correlate very strongly to people who feel themselves to be affluent. And just because we have one form of affluence leading to a low birth rate should in no way invalidate the possibility that a different form of affluence, a non-material form of affluence, might have had the same, the same effect. I wanted to draw your attention to a, uh, a very interesting observation about that transition point between the hunting-gathering and the Neolithic. We've observed that in the existing ethnographic record, we have the evidence of the Hadza tribe in Tanzania, who seem actively to have rejected a pastoralist alternative to their hunting-gathering lifestyle, uh, and continued then to pursue seasonal uh, nomadic behaviors in terms of keeping their community alive. Is there a way that we can take that behavior observed in the modern day and write it back onto the Paleolithic? And indeed, there may be a way that we can do it. And it's, it's a very ingenious method of inferring what the past might have looked like. And it comes to us through the spread of language. Now, as you may know, here in Spain, there is one very, very odd language that is spoken in the Iberian Peninsula, Basque, exactly. Basque is a very curious language. It appears to be orphaned from all other language groups that we know. It is its own language group. It is in no way Indo-European. How do we explain the persistence of Basque? And the answer is no one really knows, but a good hypothesis is that the Basque language represents a kind of Paleolithic linguistic holdover from an earlier period before people speaking Indo-European languages migrated uh, westward into the European continent. So let's take a look at that migration, bearing in mind that Basque example. From what we know of Indo-European, it started somewhere in the so-called the Pontic Steppe, so north of the, uh, the Black Sea. 
And from those steppe origins, it then spread eastward down into what is today Iran and India, to the Indian subcontinent, because Sanskrit is an Indo-European language, as is Farsi. And it also spread west. Greek is an Indo-European language, as is Latin, as is Hittite, which is the language that ends up being spoken in Anatolia. And the interesting thing is that we know, based on really very clever reconstructions of what this original Ur language looked like, so-called Proto-Indo-European, that it was a language spoken by people who were farmers. Because there are words in common between Hittite, Persian, Sanskrit, and Greek, and others, for things like cow, or horse, or cart, or corn. So we know that there was this core vocabulary that reflected an agricultural way of life. And the suggestion is that Indo-European spreads as these early pastoralist-slash-agriculturalists take their practices and simply move across the map, both east, west, and south. This gives us an interesting opportunity to have a kind of paleolithic laboratory for one economic paradigm, an economic paradigm of agricultural production, versus another economic paradigm, the paradigm of mobile hunting and gathering. In the context of one clearly superior technology confronting one clearly inferior technology, human rational capabilities being what they are, what would we predict? If somebody is using an inferior technology and sees a much better technology, what is a rational human being going to do? Switch over. Superior technology is going to result in a switch. As rational people say, oh, that's a much better way of doing it. So when Indo-Europeans brought their agriculture with them as they moved from the steppes west into Europe, if agriculture represented unambiguously a superior technology, what would we expect to see? We would expect to see that existing groups who lived inside of the European lands, and we know that they were there, we would expect them to have adopted those agricultural technologies. People faced with the clearly superior technology of agriculture would have themselves become agriculturalists. And that is not what the linguistic evidence seems to point to. Instead, what it seems to point to is that the Indo-European farming communities, because they had higher rates of reproduction, because more children is better in the context of a farming economy, simply out-reproduced the local hunter-gatherers to the point then where they became the dominant group in all of these different regions. And it was only in very unusual and remote places, like the Basque-speaking lands, where we still see perhaps some vestigial evidence of a hunting-gathering European pre-agricultural cultural complex existing. But everywhere else, it seems that the farming technology that was imported replaced the existing cultural complex. The reason that's interesting is because it suggests that the people who were living hunting-gathering lives in these regions, when they were faced with agricultural technology, did not see it as superior, did not see it as something that they wanted to adopt, but instead remained hunter-gatherers. They, presumably not equipped with the latest from Darwinian evolutionary research, did not realize that the differential between their own reproductive rates and those of farmers would eventually lead to their elimination from the pages of history. But from the point of view of human psychology, very interesting, because it suggests that the affluence, let's use that word, the affluence enjoyed by those hunter-gatherers was at least sufficient, if not superior, than the perceived affluence of the alternative. And that, to me, in my mind, goes quite a long way 
to suggesting that Solens is onto something. We still have some problems to deal with, but to be clear, things like emphasizing mobility do go a long way to evening out those perturbations and unpredictabilities that might derive from the environment. Now, I said we would do something neat. Let's look at what Solens is doing inside of this text. We think of the post-Neolithic, and this includes ourselves, products of the post-Neolithic. Sedentary, living in one place. Material, having material things. Deferred, meaning saving for the future, passing the marshmallow test. Emphasizing a culture of technology and change, where change is progress. We live lives that are secure, leisured, and confident. Let's look at those last three. Secure, how secure are we? We're dependent on the market. If the market goes down, if something bad happens to the market, if we end up in deep recession, that sense of security goes with it. We are only as secure as the market forces that are around us. And hence, similarly, our confidence. Our confidence in our ability to be able to leave good lives is directly and intimately linked to the healthy market function, which is one of the reasons why gradually, slowly, generation to generation over the next 100, 200 years, we're going to see people increasingly suffering from forms of society-wide post-traumatic stress disorder as the operation of the market they need to feel confident becomes increasingly incompatible with a healthy environment in which they lead those lives. And that incompatibility, we've already pointed out, is eventually going to create some kind of paradigm shift, but it's going to take a while to get there, and meanwhile, it's going to engender a lot of anxiety. So if you look at what Solens is really doing here, we are the ones who are living lives that are precarious. We are the ones who live lives that are work intense. We are the ones who suffer from anxiety. And the hunting-gathering economic paradigm is in fact characterized to some degree by higher levels of security, leisure, and confidence. Now, if you're leading a life that is secure, full of leisure, and confident, how likely are you going to be to want to change it? Where's your incentive to take your secure, confident, leisured life and say, oh my God, this is so bad, we need to do things differently here. It's not going to exist. Let's go back to that sapient paradox. How can we explain that human beings for 95% of our existence apparently did nothing to improve the material conditions of their lives? They didn't lack the cognition. We have examples clearly of people using their cognitive powers to optimize their relationship given their environment. So perhaps the answer is they just didn't have any incentive because their lives were secured, leisured, and confident. Maybe not the best, None of us here would want to go back and trade our lives with someone in the Paleolithic, but it's taken us a long time to get here. And I want to conclude this discussion by asking you to think for yourselves. You'll be able yourselves, I think, to actually work through the implications of this suggestion. There's a very famous American philosopher named John Rawls who wrote a book called The Theory of Justice. And as part of his theory of justice, he asked people to indulge in a thought experiment, which he called the veil of ignorance. He said, in order to arrive at a just society, each person in that society must place themselves behind a veil of ignorance so that they do not know where they will be in that society. Ask them what would they expect of that society, given that they don't know what kind of life, what kind of person they'll be. You don't know if you're going to be rich or poor and so on. And so for Rawls, this is a good way to arrive at a just society. So I want to ask you to do a similar experiment. There have been about 120 billion human lives led since we emerged as a species. 
In the very last little tiny, tiny fraction of that time, we now have things like Instagram and air travel and trips to Santorini. But for the vast majority of that time, we have been either hunter-gatherers or peasants, farmers, either the mobile poor or the agriculturally poor, to put it in the sense of material possessions and the like. So let's imagine I put you behind a veil of ignorance. You get to lead one of those 117 billion human lives. You don't know when you're going to come back. You don't know where you're going to be. You could be anywhere on that 300,000-year timeline of human existence. Veil of ignorance is complete. The only choice you get to make is you can either decide to live that life after the Neolithic Revolution or before. And that means you know with fair degree of certainty that if you live before the Neolithic Revolution, hello hunter-gatherer, that's what you're going to be doing. Whereas if you lead that life after the Neolithic Revolution, there is a small possibility, about a 2 to 3% chance, that you might be, as it were, incarnated as a modern, western, prosperous individual. But of course, the vast majority of lives lived on the post-Neolithic side of that line have been lived as essentially forms of agricultural laborers, peasants. Which would you choose for yourself? You have no knowledge. You don't know what your life's going to look like. All you know is that you can either choose to live on one side or on the other. Which are you going to choose? Probabilistically, which is going to give you the better life? If you think about it, it's probably going to be pre-Neolithic, right? Because you don't have to work as hard, you live slightly longer, you eat slightly better, and you're not being put to work all the time. Think about the life of an agricultural laborer. You're working, either you have your own land, but much more likely you're renting land from a lord, which means a lot of the work that you're doing is going to somebody else. Your work is alienated from you. Whereas at least if you're a hunter-gatherer, preparing the food, going out on the hunt, whatever it is, you're not alienated from the means of production, to use the Marxist term. Just think about it. If it's even a choice, like if you even have to pause, think how wrong that view of a Paleolithic hunting-gathering life as being one of unremitting poverty and misery must be if you're even willing to entertain it as an option for yourself. Cannot attain. And this goes some way to helping us resolve, I think, what we were not able to resolve last time, the sapient paradox. Why did it take us so long for human beings to become human? Well, why fix something if it isn't broken? If Solins is right that hunter-gatherers, not just those who live today at the very margins of human geography, but those who are living Paleolithic lives wherever they found themselves on the globe, could, through the lifestyles that they pursued, acquire some basic degree of adequacy for the lives that they had to live, why then would they invest a lot of time and effort to make fundamental paradigmatic changes to those lives. We only change the paradigm when our existing paradigm isn't working. It may not be the best, but if it's good enough, we'll tend to stick with, with that. And so our reading of the past as being one of unbearable primitivism from which we were very lucky to escape is broadly inconsistent with the evidence that we have cognitively modern human beings living cognitively modern lives, but choosing to live them in a hunting-gathering context.